Join me, Professor RPG, as I sit down with friends, colleagues, and special guests as we reminisce and discuss role-playing games that left their mark on us. Expect to see all sorts, from western style to Japanese and even tabletop. So stay a while and listen, and let us trigger those memories of tales long since completed. Relive that fantasy you hold dear, and come along with us, adventurer, on this quest into the past. Welcome to the RPG University. Class is in session, and today we're talking about crafting worlds and becoming, overall, a better game master. As always, I am your host, Scott White, also known as Professor RPG, and this week I have the pleasure of welcoming to the university published author of the Seventh Age series of books, one of the writers on the Red Opera, and currently working on Siren's Battle of the Bards, and from what I've been told, game master extraordinaire, Rick Hines. How's it going, Rick? Hello. Well, the world hasn't ended yet. My feet are still attached to a ball of rock that is spinning around a gigantic thing of nuclear fire in the sky. So all in all, I'm doing rather well. Yeah. Who knows how long we'll keep spinning around until the nuclear stuff hits the ground that we're standing on. You never know. You never know. Right. You know, at that point, you know, as I'm being hurtled off into the vast infinite void of oblivion, you know, I I got other problems on my mind, I suppose. Yeah. Exactly. I've always thought that my preferred way to go would be black hole, just because I think that would be really unique. Well, there's also the opportunity then that you might actually get to discover what's on the other side of it. I mean, you could be just squashed into a pulp, but you could also gain superpowers. Exactly. Really, the jury's out on that. Like a wormhole. Who knows? Right. Who knows? It could be uh, go to an like uh, a Seki or whatever, like one of those anime things where I'm just in a totally different universe and I wake up and I have super powers. You don't know. And exactly. But we are here to talk and get, I'm here to rack your brain about being a better game master, being a better GM, creating worlds like you have done. And we, we talked about this a little bit before the show, but you're also a freelance writer. You have crafted and concocted wonderful worlds that players can take part in their adventuring in so i want to get a little sample of everything but before we get to all that i want to know take us on your nerd journey where did your nerddom begin what's your nerd history rick oh my nerd yeah my nerd history jesus goes way back right uh like most of us nerds now that are now actual professionals in nerddom uh let's see i began as a gamer uh, with the game system that few people know, but beloved by many, is Wraith the Oblivion. I was 14 years old in high school and at a chess tournament, because yes, I was that kid who played chess. I found a group that was storytelling Wraith the Oblivion, and that game, two players by candlelight, one person plays a shadow, one person is uh, like an actual player. And if you're not familiar with Wraith, you're already dead. And it's a story of actual <laughs> hope in the world of darkness. And so very early on, I got into gaming, but in this really immersive way. And then I started playing a significant amount of Vampire the Masquerade. And like many teenagers in the 90s, I too was wearing trench coats out in public, pretending to be a vampire at nighttime uh, while we were playing these massive LARPs. At some point, I think you know, even when I was still a teenager, I started mm-hmm. running and storytelling these games. Um, and I had become, I had started submitting writing 
at that time to like White Wolf or like Wraith the Oblivion and, and other game lines. And over the years, I would just keep doing submissions and occasionally something would get picked up like, oh, hey, you, you know, got to work on this project or you would work for, you know, Catalyst or something, just small writing submissions, nothing major. But after I think about 10 years of storytelling all the way up to the point where I was running these massive 600 person live action games in castles, we... I sat down and I realized all I had was bar memories, right? Everybody would talk about the games that we would run, whether mm -hmm. they be like 10 week short stories or epic long chronicles. And it was kind of life consuming to run stories for that many people all over the time. I bet. But I didn't have anything to show for it. Everything was uh, in the tradition of oral storytelling. You know, they were fleeting mm -hmm. moments. They were impactful. You know, there was drama. There was tears. Friends would fight. People would kill each other. Not in real life. And, you know, so I was like, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to write a novel. So I entered NaNoWriMo one year. And fantastic, I... fantastic event, by the way. Absolutely it, love it NaNoWriMo. Very, very excited for next month. Oh, yes, I'm all set for it. Yeah, it's where a bunch of his insane writers uh, sit on down and try to write 50,000 words in a month. And I found that sitting on down and listening to metal music or like crazy anime music um, in the background where I couldn't understand the lyrics and just build the seventh age mm -hmm. was awesome. I loved it. Uh, November ended and I didn't stop writing. Uh, January came and went and I was still writing every single day. When I was done, I had a novel. And I was just going to like let it sit on my computer and be like, cool, I wrote this thing. Great. You know, that's it. I'm never going to do anything with it. A friend had asked me or actually challenged me over a bottle of writer's tier whiskey. Hey, go ahead and submit this. There's this contest by the Nerdist, a geek and sundry. And so I turned it in. And after uh, the 30-month uh, contest deadline, I actually won. Or 30-day contest deadline. I actually won. And I became a published author at that point. My book came on out. It won an award for uh, best post-apocalyptic fiction. And I got to become the person who's an electrician by day and writer who writes sarcastic stuff about the end of the world at night. <laughs> um, and since it was done through Geek and Sundry, at some point, one of the chief editors at Geek and Sundry kind of sent an email out to all of their writers. Uh, asking, hey, does anybody work on or know anything about tabletop gaming for systems other than Dungeons and Dragons? And everybody else was kind of quiet. And I'm sitting there in the background, like flailing my hands and email. Like I have played literally every other system out there or story told it. Everything from riffs to deadlands to, you know, kids on yeah. bikes, dread, Ted candles, like the list goes on. It was always the alternative systems. I mean, sure. I played D and D I've story told D and D before, but I was really invested in a lot of the other game lines that are out there. Mm -hmm. And, I had started writing for Geek and Sundry as a contributor on a regular basis until I took over this uh, column. Matt Mercer had started up a series called Game Master Tips, uh, GM Tips, and he had a video series for it. And then um, the video series was kind of trailing off. The Satine Phoenix was the one to take off a very short run uh, series of it next, where she was inviting other GMs out onto the show to give their advice. And in the background, and while that was going on, I was writing 
all of the GM tips. The series continued for another two years of just, here's different ways to run games, be a better storyteller. While I was doing that, I was also working more in games and writing, doing more novels, um, and then making the Red Opera Last Days of the Warlock with Pat Edwards. And recently, uh, the most recent project I finished was a project called uh, The Crow. Um, I actually just finished writing the adventure for The Crow official RPG. And the, now we're the, is it based on the um, Jimmy Lee or yeah Jimmy Lee James, series or that was James, a comic series first? Correct? Yeah, James James Obar's uh, comic series. Yeah. I was a fan who grew up on it so like vividly when I saw that they were making an RPG for it, I basically flung myself at Evil Genius Studios. I was like, dude, you are going to hire me for this. I am the person. I love Wraith. I know all the vampire games. I grew up on The Crow. I've signed my novels next to James O'Barr at conventions. Let me write this. And so I came up with a way to stitch all of the lore and the world of all the various like Crow universes where people could actually play and either kick off a campaign or end a very long running campaign. I'm super excited for it to come out. I can totally talk about it. And it comes out in January. That sounds awesome. And honestly, I would just as a side note, I would love to have you back just to talk about developing and your, your work stitching all of it together when it does come out. Sure. Totally. Um, and cause like I, I can talk endlessly about that. Um, but then <laughs> we are launching, uh, our own studio, uh, called Storytellers Forge, which is literally about writing campaign books and storylines that are epic, have meaning and impact, but also teach storytellers young and experienced how to craft immersive tales at the table with mm -hmm. riveting campaigns at the same time. And our first book um, that we're writing on right now is The Black Ballad. And it's sort of, uh, you know, musically inspired a tale of, you know, clerics, metal. The idea is that our adventure begins when yours ends. It's the perfect campaign to run after your party has been TPK'd. I like that premise. Also, I appreciate Black Bad Ballad could easily be worked into Black Betty. Oh, Black Ballad, Blamblegam. Whoa, Black Ballad, Blamblegam. I, uh, you know, I, I have played more than a few technocracy <laughs> characters with that song as a theme song. But uh, in this case, it's inspired by the album that Dia Morte had, uh, this uh, metal band that's an ensemble cast of all these different like voice actors and uh you know, like video game enthusiasts and voice yeah. actors, they have their whole metal album that's based off, or that is like their 10 track thing that they're making. And I find music and gaming go together. I made a joke once that the, uh, you know, Venn diagram of metalheads and gamers is really just a circle. <laughs> yeah. It's, so. I, I, I completely understand what you mean. Like getting the inspiration from music. Cause I'm very much the same way. Like, it's amazing what ideas in uh, like set pieces or worlds or just events take shape when you're listening to a really, really good song. Yeah, I have. I'm that person for every single character I have in my novel worlds mm -hmm. or even my game lines and even adventures when I'm a storyteller. I have full soundtracks. My Spotify playlist is a massive behemoth of just catered songs for a thousand different events and or characters. 
That's that's awesome. And it's so you got you wrote Seventh Age. So how long were you sitting on Seventh Age before the competition with Geek and Sundry? Uh, well, I'd actually only just finished the. Um, I had finished getting the book professionally developmental edited. I the storyline and the world of the Seventh Age and the concept I had known about that one for about ten years. Mm-hmm. A lot of my games and chronicles, like even though we were using you know perhaps like White Wolf or we were using other game systems like Deadlands, eventually, like I think most storytellers end up doing, you end up building your own world. And sort of the premise and the hook of the Seventh Age series was that the Illuminati, the Masons, and all these secret societies had magic forever. And what happens when a bunch of anarchists in Chicago level the playing field and give that shit to everybody in the world? You too can be immortal or grant yourself the ability to control minds. What you gotta do is summon a demon, kill it, and eat its heart. And what does demon heart taste like? Peaches. It tastes like peaches. That can you have demon heart cobbler? Yeah. Yes, you can. Um, you know, it was really funny was when I wrote the sequel, I had to actually where somebody a lot of, at conventions, people would ask me, they're like, what if you're vegan? And I'm like, well, my sequel is all about magic returns and corporations branding it. So I guess eventually some corporation's going to find a way to like try to like hop on the, you know, non GMO demon heart or the vegan, uh, you know, trained, uh, mm-hmm. find a way to do something with the synthetic. And so I got to explore that one in the sequel. Well, uh, I mean, according to Scott Pilgrim universe, being a vegan gives you your own set of powers, too, apparently. It does. It does. I love that movie so much, too. So good. Great video game, too. Amazing comic, amazing uh, beat-em-up, like classic beat-em-up, and great movie. It's Oh, I've I've played... I have mastered that beat-em-up game, right? I got, like, knives unlocked and everything, so... uh, You know, sadly, I had to give up most video gaming. That is the thing... That died for me when I when my nerddom started to become professional nerddom mm-hmm. is I tried to give up sleep at one point so I could still play games like League of Legends or Diablo or, you know, any RPGs that I wanted. It did not work. Yeah. Um, so gaming in that capacity, I was like, OK, I have a rule now. I will only play a game and it has to have a beginning, a middle and an end, mm-hmm. not be an open ended endless competitive pvp game or i will be lost forever um, because i love that stuff and i will play it when i finish a project so every time i finish a project i curl up on my couch i hide under a blanket and i play an rpg where i can press an extra x button and sob myself to sleep with a riveting storyline hell yeah hell yeah and now in on your writer site it says you spent countless caffeine driven hours playing diablo what was your go-to class like what's your go-to class ah it was all about the uh the the paladin or the crusader classes i loved you know diablo 2 you know just running through having your auras and having your like a team of other paladins on hardcore Mm -hmm. mode because i only played diablo on hardcore mode which i did learn a lesson about drinking on new year's eve one year and logging into your hardcore account you should never do this you will die and you will wake up the next day going huh, that was probably not the wisest choice of action. But uh, I digress. Uh, I always went with, uh, you know, the Paladins and the Crusaders, anything like that. So Very cool. I Now, you're currently working on a number of projects, like you mentioned, like Black Ballad. Um, you have the Crow coming out and everything. 
with the crow coming out in January, depending on when it comes out, do you think you'll you'll make the dive back into Sanctuary when D four comes out next year? Um No, because I will be knee deep in writing both my third novel or um third novel or literally working on the black ballad. However, once my third novel is done and the black ballad is done, I'm actually gonna play Cyberpunk and Elden Ring. Those are the ones on my nice by my list right now. They're lit. I owned the games. They are sitting near my TV. I see them every day, and I'm like, "Gee, Rick, I would love to play this." And I go, "I should also sit on down and write a few thousand words." There you go. Well, they're they're wonderful, and really, they'll just be better when you actually get to them having been patched and everything. So you're letting them age like fine wine. Yes, this is a good way to think about it. Um, so what is Let's take a uh, let's use Black Ballad for uh, as an example. What has been or like what is your design process when you think of a new location, a new kind of plot hook or, or something unique? And you're, I want to make that into a setting or a novel. What is your design process to to come to get that to fruition? Okay, so, I mean, everything with me starts with knowing where something ends, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I will never write a campaign book if I already don't know where the end of the tale is. And even when you're dealing with players and you can never predict how they will end, you should at least have, like, a sandbox idea of, like, if the players do nothing, then this is going to happen. When it comes to novels, you know, I can tell you exactly where the fifth book of my series ends. I know the exact scene and i've known it even before i started writing the first one so in knowing where something ends when i sit on down to create the black ballad and it's setting uh that's some, sort of this afterlife that you can plug into anybody's homebrew world i got to make a few design choices right off the bat one is i want it to be homebrew compatible right it, it should never override anybody's setting so right away it means i know i'm creating something that can be encapsulated mm -hmm. and then i know the storyline and the events and the reason that that might exist as a place so it's all about motivation is the next part when you're writing these stories and you're designing these why does a place exist where's it going to go what's going to happen things places people and events are never stagnant they're always moving. They're always dynamic. So those motivations allow any reader or even storytellers or players to gravitate towards a world naturally. So I see sometimes a lot of adventures that are just kind of written with the idea of, hey, this is it. Here's a quick, you know, little adventure hook. And this big thing might happen or this small thing might happen. But if the players don't care about that thing it's the same as basically kind of assuming that the reader doesn't care, mm -hmm. right? If your reader's reading a book and you haven't caught them in the first four or five chapters, um, you know, they're just not going to read the book. They're not invested in the world. So I spend a lot of time really imagining what is special about this. And when I go to give panels on uh, how to not suck at storytelling, which is a panel I do at conventions like all around the country, um, one of the big things I talk about is your hook. If somebody walks up to me and says, hey, Rick, I got an idea. Do you want to play D&D? I go, well, there's a lot of D&D games. I have a lot of time. I'm busy doing, you know, all of these other things. And it's just not that interesting, right? It's mm -hmm. just a D&D game. But if somebody walks up to me and says, hey, Rick, I got an idea for a D&D game where 
this badass thing is happening and you guys are going to take on this agency and play characters from the sandbox, I can start visualizing myself in that world already. And that makes me want to play. Yeah. So I try to make sure I design those same elements into a world. What is... No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, like, what is a a uh, plot twist like of that has been done to death but you like still absolutely love pulling off like do you have that like just comfort plot twist that i love i love tropes uh yeah. tropes and things like that exist for a reason and they allow you as authors to creatively break them for purposeful impact. You know, so for me, sometimes, you know, I, you know, one of the plot, one of the tropes I love breaking is the idea that like the heroes or the protagonists are going to go in. And even if it's near the end of the campaign and the, they're, you think they're going to beat the villain and just no. The rug gets pulled out right there. The villain, you know, sort of Dr. Dooms and just beats everybody, right? And I love that kind of idea that you have. Like, the heroes have done their montage. They've gone through their hero's journey. They get to the end. And then we're going to change things on them suddenly. We're going to rug pull them right there. And I know that sometimes players might go, or people might think, oh, you're completely taken away their agency they did all the work they're doing these elements i'm like no 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 no. trust me we make it fun that's one that i definitely know i lean on because i want Mm -hmm. players to make a choice right i want players to react to the situation and realize that the villains are also dynamic npcs you know the lich just doesn't sit in his dungeon not paying attention to the people who've been slaughtering his monsters for the past 10 acts of a of a campaign He's been actively watching. So, you know, I like to lead and lead those Easter eggs throughout stories. So that's one that I definitely am guilty of. Um, you know, my campaigns tend to fall and my storylines do tend to have this idea that the world and the antagonists are dynamic, mostly because when you're writing RPG adventures, you can't control the players. So the only thing you can write is really badass villains. Yeah. And... I'm I'm curious what your your thoughts on with being with crafting these worlds and with what you were just like working with tropes and everything. What is what's your approach to balancing? Because like you said, villains aren't just static; they're just not sitting around. Like I am current. I run a homebrew campaign, have been for about two years now, and it's i have an end goal like i know what the villains are plotting and what they're working towards to to do like the big climactic final act like what they're working towards what how do you balance having an end goal in mind while not shoehorning your players I guess. Absolutely. No, no, I know exactly this. I have an entire method for this. Um, I, I've written blog posts about this. It's one of my favorite questions. I love this question. So um, I firmly believe that no storyteller should really plan plan down to the nitty, de- nitty detail of everything that's going to happen because you can't control players. But what you can control are certain major plot beats that will happen mm-hmm. if your players do nothing. 
So I kind of like write like a baseline of if the players really aren't involved in anything, then this is what's going to happen, right? And, you know, that's the whole point. The world is right. going to move on unless somebody steps up and challenges that person, they're going to get what they want. Now, that also means you kind of have to account about what would the rest of the world do to stop them. Mm-hmm. And that becomes fun. Are there other heroes out in the world that might get involved? What's the plan for dealing with those? And when you start asking those other questions around that, you can start finding like your ideas for side quests. Yeah. But what I do, what I do is a very simple trick. I write down what happens if nobody gets involved. And then I write down what happens if the players succeed on everything. They completely, you know, just crush every skill check all the way through. Uh, and they make the right choices, you know, in my head, or they make the right choices for their characters. And since I tend to write campaigns that are more on the uplifting style, where it's more about the character's personal storyline, I tend to never assume a right or wrong choice. I assume that the players are always going to make the best choice for their characters. And I'm okay with that. I love Mm -hmm. that. And then I'll also write what happens if the characters get involved but decide to do something unexpected. Maybe they team up with the villain. Maybe they, you know, wander off in another direction. And so knowing these three outcomes as just a baseline, I can almost write and design backwards all the way down to chapter one so I can have a single point of entry into the campaign and kind of use these, like, branching rail lines, I guess. Mm -hmm. They're not... You have to put some guideposts in when you're actually publishing content uh, in a homebrew campaign. Yeah, I just have a spreadsheet with like five different notes and I just kind of go from there, right? But when you're writing it for somebody else to be able to take it and storyline it, I tend to enjoy books that bring you into the world. They have that flavor. They're not written like dry rule books. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead, they kind of give you this, here's what's going to happen. Your players might do this. Here are some potential ideas, but you here are the themes of this adventure and this encounter. Here's what you, the storyteller, are trying to accomplish. You're trying to hit this tension, tragedy, happiness, comedy, you know, letting the players feel powerful. So you can take that core emotion and then spin it around in a thousand different ways and let your players have full agency. And you are almost like a watcher just Mm -hmm. waiting to put down that one emotion that you want to hit in that plot beat like this event's gonna happen you know like and here's here's why and this event might look entirely different Mm -hmm. than written in the adventure you might take it you might modify it, you might rubik's cube it but any storyteller is gonna find a way to invoke that emotion at their player's table and that's kind of what i try to aim for without this way i can allow the players to completely trash the world i mean in the red Mm -hmm. opera we literally have an ending for what happens if the players just walk away if they decide to say that the city of warlocks is just so gone and lost they're going to let the elder gods destroy it there's an actual (laughs) ending for what happens when they do that and how it will impact them on their next quest that's so cool i love being a, a a gm it is I almost get as exciting, like, when I think of cool plot hooks for the individual characters, like, playing with their backgrounds that they give, or knowing kind of what the bad, the villains are working towards. It It's, 
I get so giddy waiting for them to to uncover these things. And it's one yeah. of my biggest um like happy moments when I can finally like reveal the big thing that's been hinted at or that I've been dropping little breadcrumbs and seeing that realization on the players and it's at least for me when I think of something cool it it almost drives me insane it's like oh I I thought of something amazing but you won't encounter it for like months down the road (laughs) so I scribble it down but I, I love that, but I think my personal favorite is when I have the sandbox set and the players are invested enough and they're actually engaged to a point where they start theory crafting oh, yeah. what is really going on. And some of their theory craft ideas, players are their own worst enemy. 100%. And so I'll be sitting there and they'll be like, oh, this really thing is going to happen. I was like, actually, you know, the villain. And I won't, I won't go back and change the villain's motivation. Like that mm-hmm. wasn't what he was trying to do. He was always trying to do this, um, or like this is what was really happening with this company or this faction. But when they start theory crafting, and there's a really good idea, and I'm like, oh, somebody is going to use that in this world at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's my favorite. It's just watching the players have their conspiracy tree. And I mean, I've had entire game sessions where they literally pulled out a whiteboard and are like drawing stuff and they're all engaged. And I'm just sitting back drinking like a bottle of mead, like just occasionally yeah. waiting for like a answering questions after they make some skill checks, just yep. waiting for them to finish their, their theory crafting session. And they get done with the board. And I'm like, you guys are absolutely insane. I love every one of you. And I can't say anything, you know? And yeah. My go-to players... response is, oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, Just... right. That's the, the most terrifying phrase like, for a storyteller to, to, uh, to offer, right? Yeah. You're like, uh-huh. Wow, okay. It's an interesting point. It's like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And, that, and seeing them squirm and go back yep. to theory crafting. Yeah, that, it's it's pretty fantastic. Um. You mentioned how playing in person is different than when you're crafting a narrative to, to sell. Kind of f- go into that a bit. Like, what are the, kind of the guideposts that you have to be aware of when you are planning to publish a, a campaign or a module or something? And how do you plan for what system that you're you're developing a, a game for? Like Red but, Opera, for example, or Black Ballot. So those being are, are almost two very different questions. I'll try to tackle them each uh, separately. Uh, I like to write my campaign worlds, whether it be the Crow, Black Ballad, Red Opera, you know, Sirens, um, you know, and other even modules that I've worked on for uh, some other companies. But I like to plan around the idea that you can't control. Uh, you have no idea what the table looks like. You don't know the makeup of the players. You don't mm-hmm. know what they're into. You don't know if they're into combat-heavy, social role-play, you know, things like that. So when a designer from some other game line would come to me and say, oh, I need a fight on a boat and, you know, for pirates for these reasons, I'm usually there like, well, what if the players don't want to talk or fight the pirates? What if they want to, like, romance them? You know, like, I understand the idea that home groups and actual play is going to get completely out of toss completely out of there. So when you're actually running at home, I know my play group. I can write directly to my play group, directly to my players mm-hmm. and 
directly to what they would enjoy after years of storytelling for them or even for new players at conventions who i've never met before um th for that kind of storytelling is almost almost like what you're gonna write you have no idea who these people are they're total strangers they sit on down at your table and you have no idea what they like so what do you do you ask questions and as a storyteller, when I write campaign books, I actually do the same thing. I usually have something like the letter home that we have in the Red Opera, where the players will very quickly write something like a letter home to a, that somebody that they love. And it serves like a background and it kind of gives me an insight without the players realizing it into what kind of thing they might like. Did they describe themselves being killed gloriously in battle? Or are they writing something that's tragic and touching? Now, when you go to actually write that and and fully flesh it out you remember that you're not talking to the players you're talking to the person who's storytelling the game but yet mm -hmm. you have to write the book as if a player wants to read it like a novel so it should still have a storyline it should still have world flavor the writing should still be engaging it should ooze theme in my opinion there's a lot of very dry books out there and people love dry books because, hey, here's a rules book. It's simple, it's clean, it's efficient. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. But I'm writing storylines, right? I'm not writing a, a game design rules book. And so for the storylines, I you have to realize you're talking to the storyteller. So you have to arm that storyteller with the ability to improv. And that means you have to ask questions in the chapter or give guidance. Hey, you know, you have this adventure might be written for a tier four encounter, but you might only have one player show up to that game session or two players. So here's how you change the camera lens of that encounter. Here's how you pivot, you narrate, you shift down, you know, the dragon lands at the table and maybe like half his wings were chopped off already from another battle prior. It's still an epic encounter because you, can, you can't write for every possible scenario. Mm -hmm. So instead, you have to design one encounter that can be dynamic and shift the needs of anybody's home table. Now, that takes a bit. Like, I, I do admit that that part took a while to be able to really, really kind of hone in on mm -hmm. in a way that I know works when I can hand it blindly to another storyteller that's never run the game and they love it and they can like get their table involved you know and it's been kind of fun to sit back and watch streamers and people doing actual plays of the full campaign of like the red opera and seeing the choices that the players make and also sometimes occasionally somebody <laughs> flipping through the book being like who the hell wrote this rick hines and i'm like uh, yeah, totally guilty, you know, right after they have to make a choice that somebody in their party is going to have to be sacrificed, you know, there's something like tragic or bad. And they're like, ah, and <laughs> damn you ketchup it. man. Right. Uh, they love it, but it's all about arming the storytelling. So that's the big difference between writing from home for your home group and writing a published adventure is your home group. You get to write for your players for published adventures. You have to write for the storytellers. Do you find that having to be more um, spelled out and deliberate when you're kind of those limitations that you have to put on yourself when releasing a written thing f that other players that you will never see or never meet will experience, do you, do you find it almost 
because I know, like, especially, like, old video games, that a lot of creativity and creative solutions come from putting restrictions on yourself. And as an artist and writer, like, sometimes I feel like I get, I come up with more inventive and original ideas when I do put some restrictions on myself. Do you find that it's more rewarding or that you can kind of be more inventive when you are making the published versions for the mass market as opposed to um, being at the whims, I guess, more so with your the players at a, at a table? Oh, I, don't, I don't think I ever really noticed it myself. And I think that's probably because, one, when you start running live action games with 600 people, you inherently start learning how to create like the sandbox and allow players to have just Mm -hmm. complete player agency within that so even when i do design my homebrew campaigns and things like that i know i can deviate and go into left field with my players and i also don't really plot as much but i do know my storyline i do you know actually have my like rough bullet points my rough outline when i'm told by another company hey rick we want you to write this you know adventure about time travel right that's kind of the restriction you know of we want an adventure about time travel and it's going to fit in these things every game session needs to be 18 minutes long okay that's a pretty fun restriction and so i worked to write and fulfill that how do you tell 18 minute long game sessions and you know that changed design rules the encounters the things that were there but i just had fun with it i wouldn't say i was any more creative though because i'm used to naturally just working with restrictions that's cool. That that that's cool. Do, do you have you found with working on all various manner of kind of freelance stories and adventures like you mentioned like the time travel for 18 minute sessions is there a particular what's kind of the hardest aspect of creating these adventures for you? Uh, the part that I find the most tedious is the part that nobody ever thinks about. It's the... naming places. I, I, that's my thing. Coming up naming with places? cool sounding naming places. Yeah, no, uh, I, I, uh, I have friends that I get to call for names. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, mine is the contract review and the administration, the business aspect. Um, you know, like I know it. Like we, we get to you know kind of glorify the. Uh, you know, hey, we're creatives, we're doing things, you know, and whether or not I'm a freelancer or I'm the owner of a project, because mm -hmm. I tend to gravitate towards projects that I have a vested interest in, as in, like, royalties, like, because I come from the literary world first, mm -hmm. right? And so in the tabletop game community, one of the big problems that I see as a whole is that the designers and the writers and the artists are usually hidden behind the veil of an anonymous, we're this team, or this company made this thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so whereas like in the novel world or in other facets, um, you know, people have ownership of their work. In most freelance writing, you know, you're paid for work on hire. And, you know, once the project is done, you get to walk away and that's it. I stopped doing ghostwriting several years ago because I realized, I'm, why am I spending my wheels doing ghostwriting? The pay was good, but um, I would rather have a vested interest in something. So... For me, the part of crafting these things is the that I don't like the most, or I'm I'm good at it now, but I, I definitely struggled with was 
here's your management of time, here's your contract review, here's your invoicing, your tax forms, your, you know, all like mm -hmm. getting, you know, your I number set up. There's a whole business element to running this part that as you scale up is, I think, a very valid conversation. And then if, especially if a project goes south and it doesn't, it isn't all warm and fuzzy and everybody's like high-fiving each other at the end. And there's debates and arguments and sometimes lawyers involved. Yeah, that sounds like it would definitely sour things and be tough. It's like, I, I can't imagine being... I love the aspect of creating worlds to create these adventures uh, and, and flesh things out. And my brain just hurts trying to think of maneuvering all those things you just mentioned. <laughs> and oh, I, I do have one simple one map making. I cannot do maps. And if you ask me to describe this adventure I have in map format, you will get a it's a piece of napkin paper with like a circle on it and like a yeah. stick figure. And I'm like, cause I run a lot of mind's eye theater and narrative storytelling. Um, I have to, that's, that's where I go hire other freelancers mm -hmm. myself. And I'm like, Hey, I need you to read what I wrote and turn it into a map. Pretty please. I'll pay you. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to some of the absolute stellar fantasy map makers out there that like have Etsy shops and, and things they are. It is a art form making yeah. sick looking maps. Yeah, so that's that's a part art an, an art artistic mind for like painting, drawing, things like that. But even what's funny is I'm an uh, electrician by day and I read blueprints all of the time. And you think I would be able to be like, oh, I got this cool cathedral and I'm gonna you know do a cathedral blueprint of it at least as a basis for a map. No, the problem is the moment I start doing that, I get flashbacks to my day job, and I'm no longer interested. <laughs> yeah, I, I I could see that. Um, one of the things you touched on is, uh, briefly in this, and then you talked a little bit about it b before we started recording, was you're also really big into LARPing, live-action role-play. How has that, like... Tell us a bit about that and like your experience with that and is obviously there would be vastly different uh, uh, issues or things you have to take into account when you're dealing with, like you said, 600 plus people. But like what are kind of the similarities between running a LARP game or I, don't, I apologize, I don't know the proper term, but like a LARP session versus a, a tabletop session? Uh, well, the biggest thing is that you don't have to worry about what the players will encounter because your players are going to spend most of their time role-playing with each other and engaging with each other. They themselves fill the NPCs of the world. So you're responsible for more setting and literally setting, as in, like, I'm going to rent out this bar and I'm going to have, for the next 10 weeks, every Saturday night, we're going to run out this back room. We're going to redecorate this entire bar to look like an occult library or something like that. And I might only have 10 or 14 players. That might be an invite-only game. And so it's a parlor LARP is what we call it. It's a short, immersive style. You know, everybody That is such has a cool idea. You have these uh, character sheets that I would write up to every single person. So I would give you ahead of time, I would be like, okay, hey, you know, you and I would work together to make a character in secret, in private. None of the other players know what you're making. 
and we'll craft up your character and I'll give you some motivations. I'll tell you what the storyline is. I'll almost do a session zero with you privately by yourself. And you know, you'll get your character sheet, you'll know what starting resources you have, we'll walk through any of like the rules and things. And then when the game session actually begins, you show up for the first time and it's the first time that you're meeting these other characters. You might be walking into this occult library thinking, I'm here to meet scholars from other kingdoms. You know, one person mm -hmm. might be an assassin, one person might be an abrasive jerk, you know, but it's your first time meeting them. And then it's my job as a storyteller to both serve more as an administrator and also make sure that the event stays engaging the entire night that you're there. That might require me to hire people to play NPCs um, to show up in costume and be a little bit more outgoing or gregarious mm -hmm. in action acting. I might need some strong people who are like good at acting skills. I might need some people who are um you know good at stage dressing or you know the ability to help set a stage and those are some of the other elements but mostly as a storyteller i'm watching what players are doing helping resolve conflict because player versus player is a very real thing in in live action and you want to still make sure that it's fun it's engaging it's compelling and then yes, I am gonna pepper in storylines and plot lines. I might walk up to you in the middle of a session and even though there's 15 other players around, pull you aside and say, by the way, you notice these things, something's not fitting right. And then I leave it upon you to go out and act that, to go put that story into the world. So you're kind of sitting back dropping plot hooks to everybody. So everybody has something that they're doing. If somebody's disinterested or disengaged off to the corner and they're kind of sitting alone, it doesn't matter if there's a massive combat going on. My focus is on getting that person back involved in the game. I love that idea. Like, I've never considered renting out a space, like a bar or a brewery or something, to do to put on something like this. Like, it is such a cool idea. Even if you're doing, um, you can totally, I've done this before, where we'll just do something like that. And it's just for four or five players. And instead of playing uh you know necessarily traditional like dungeons and dragons we're actually at a tavern we're doing some things and i'll have people show up and like play npcs on occasion to sit on down at the table with them and like the game session that i did this once was it was actually everybody's session zero everybody was an adventurer who came from a party where everybody else died and they were all supposed to show up and drink their sorrows away and they were all at a tavern and they slowly started congregating into each other but nobody else knew who was playing the game and so the party That's got to such meet a themselves cool idea rick even Holy though crap. even though that that campaign would continue to go on to be a traditional D, &D game mm -hmm. and we would occasionally mix in some elements i started it as a larp where nobody knew what was up and they met organically at a table in character with no dice. Holy crap, Rick. That's that's galaxy brain shit right there. That is genius. Thank you. I actually had a really a lot of fun with that game. The other game where I mentioned where we ran it out of the back of the bar and ended up me being almost lynched at the end because I I do this panel I mentioned called How to Not Suck at Storytelling. Mm. And uh, at the end of that game uh, after 10 weeks of my players being thoroughly thoroughly invested and like you know writing all these crazy conspiracy theories i decided that my arch villain was going to put everybody in a dream sequence in great game session nine and have them reveal all their secret plans so i knew what they were thinking they thought it was the end of the game i realized i revealed that it was a dream sequence 
And that entire room of players all looked at me. I bought so many <laughs> drinks that night. Um, uh, I will never run a dream sequence again in my life. So half the fun of being a storyteller is when you make mistakes as well, you're like, okay, I'm never doing that one again. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that, uh, the old dream secret, uh, sequence. Yeah. I could see how, how that could get you some, uh, some angry eyes. That's for yeah. sure. Do you have a setting or an idea that's kind of been percolating in your head that it's like, one day I'll make that? Or something that you're keeping just for your close-knit group of players? Like a setting or a story? Um, something that, down the road, or, or I, I guess I'm rambling at this point. You know, oh my god, there's millions of them um uh writer's block is not a thing that i suffer with but ones that it will actually probably see print uh or make um i ran a whole store program up here in uh chicago with where i'm from uh where i wanted to teach kids how to become storytellers so i started up a program that i call the storytellers forge normally notice that's exactly like the studio name that we just opened up uh the concept of this was i would have kids sit on down at the table and you know, they would begin learning how to be storytellers by playing a campaign. They were never told that they were going to learn how to be storytellers. The entire campaign that I wrote for them was actually secretly teaching them how to be storytellers. You know, this brass dragon would pluck their characters that they made and drop them off into the wilderness. And every single game session was centered around them going out on an adventure for a purpose mm -hmm. and recruiting something to bring back home to start building up their home village. This program eventually grew up to a shared program of over 200 kids um, where we were hiring other storytellers to come run two-hour game sessions for kids. It was a very successful program out here. And after a year-long campaign, um, the players secretly, without them realizing it, built their own campaign city that they could use to spawn their own world. And they had their backstories, their history, where people met, like the lore behind stuff that they themselves wrote because they were the players making that. At some point, a cool idea. I'm going to take this and publish the book literally called The Storyteller's Forge. And it is those original adventures um, and the guidance of how to launch this as a program so you can get uh, our little ones or teenagers uh, back into storytelling. And they all freaking loved it because I also don't write down to them mm -hmm. in the idea. Like I was a nerd who just grabbed books off Barnes and Noble bookshelves. And it didn't matter if I was, you know, my first book I ever read was Stephen King's The Stand and I was like eight. So <laughs> no, there's, there's real stuff that happens in the campaign. It's not D and D for kids, mm -hmm. you know, and that made it fun. What a so cool idea. It's, and I've had a couple people on here that have introduced role-playing in tabletop and Dungeons and & Dragons in a school setting. And what a impressive... And, like, what a difference and impact that this hobby can have on people. Oh, that's... The, and it's, that's that idea of it being in a school setting is why I was like, I can't be the only voice in writing this. I'm having... Yeah. Uh, uh, people who are in education go through the book and add supplement materials like 
you know, here's how you launch this school program. Here's the importance of education. Here's how, you know, it allows people to get over. Because I have friends in LARP that really get, like, got over speech impediments just by virtue of going to game because they would forget who they were. And I think it's awesome yeah. uh, that this hobby can bring so much and bring other parts of people out and make them feel more confident, you know, even through their imagination. A hundred percent. And it's, it's an escape, but it also, I, I, I've heard stories of how it allowed people like students, teenagers to work through things in a, a safe way by being these characters, allowing them, their guards to drop or just, it, it, this hobby is, it, I've heard stories on how older people come back to the hobby and kind of reflex those creative muscles and, it, it, whenever, because my my group that I play with, that whose game I run, will occasion we try and go out to and play at breweries occasionally. Every now and then we'll play, try and play in an in person match as opposed to Discord, and we'll meet at like a brewery. And without fail, every time we go and play, people will come out. It's like, oh, I haven't played that in years. I remember that. And then we hear stories of their characters, and it's hearing the difference that this game has made and the impacts, the memories that this game has is or this hobby has. It's just as real as any other memory. Um, fond memory, oh, I think that's, that's exactly why I started writing. I mean, I described really early on, I had been storytelling for years and all I had was bar memories. I wanted to create something tangible from yeah. that. Right. And those friendships I have, I'm still friends with many of them, but I, in vampire LARPs in particular, sometimes mm -hmm. it can get pretty uh, toxic and, you know, PVP ish. And there'll be people who are like, whatever, it's just a sheet of paper. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not a sheet of paper. That's actually somebody's like imagination their dreams. They're like yeah. what they're trying to embody. And yes, there are consequences for actions. You know, Hey, if you don't want to die, maybe go, don't go try to like cut the head off the King, you know, like, there's going to be some Game of Thrones stuff that happens. Yeah. You know, so consequences is also a valuable lesson that I've seen mm -hmm. people who would think that they could get away with everything find out that very quickly, no, they can't. And, but those bonds and memories, when I, I have it like a, a house rule in my games, if you ever kill another player, it better have story reasons to it. And trust me, I'm the storyteller. I will know. Mm -hmm. Um, but afterwards, you guys are sitting at a game. We're having a bleed session where we drink and we talk, you know, and we actually do something meaningful around mm -hmm. that character's death. Because, you, like you described, it's it's a memory. Yeah. And especially for long-term sessions, it's like so much investment, emotional, and, and everything has been invested in these characters that these people have that the players have created it's it's so much more than just a sheet of paper with some numbers and things written on it oh yeah no i could i can't storytell for that uh when when somebody comes up to me and says hey let me tell you about my character they're a uh 14th level paladin who's x race and has access to this special feat combo i kind of look at them and i go so who's your character mm-hmm like, it just doesn't, it's it's not language that communicates with me, right? But I think that's because maybe I started off in a different role-playing game than the majority of people. I started off in Wraith the Oblivion, which is all about your character. 
Yeah, it's it's wild. It's wild. And you mentioned kind of actual plays. What do you think is kind of the biggest, not hindrance, but the biggest thing that game masters or actual plays could do better with? Um, in my personal opinion, and I know it's a hot take, don't do an actual play. Yeah. I understand that, you know, shows like Encounter Party and Critical Role and a lot of things out there are fucking awesome, but they have production, they've been doing it a while, they know what's up, right? Um, watching a four-hour stream of people play, especially when you're a storyteller or another player in the, in the hobby... I would make your actual plays either be edited to just the point of like, hey, here's the cool stuff in the story, right? And then maybe some like climatic dice moments and things like that. But, you know, there's a lot of actual plays out there that they're not actual plays are, oh God, there's so much I could talk about this. Like there's so many <laughs> internal things that I like want to say um, because it's like you're on stream for a performance. You're actually not on stream to play with each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so you're not just casually showing up and sitting at your desk and like checked out browsing the internet in the background. Like you're actually playing. And then the groups that are actually playing all the way through and everybody understands that, hey, this is a two hour, like I would set your restriction is time. I would say, hey, you're going to run an hour-long game session, and you have to talk to your players out of time. You have less player agency. Everybody on there is still going to make choices. They're still going to role play. They're still going to have that awesome dialogue. But that's the part that's engaging. You know, a combat in an actual play can be a slog to watch through unless you have a very strong storyteller who can, like, keep that combat snappy, moving, engaging mm -hmm. with awesome descriptions. But you might find that that's better in editing. So I actually really prefer it when groups who are doing actual plays pre-record all of their sessions and then release them. Good um, point. You know, I think it gives you more control over production. You know, yes, people will say, well, you know, you're not going to get your live Twitch viewer stream and things like that. And yeah, that's true. But maybe your live Twitch stream should be, hey, uh, we're going to talk about playing on actual plays we're going to talk about you know the game we're going to do reviews over what we think's broken yep. you know um you can I, do a premiere and still sit and chat and yeah and everything I, too you know i i think that you know because of shows like la by night you know which i'm actually a big fan of and you know i do occasionally you know watch some of them the other actual play that i actually really like are exploring new game systems hey mm -hmm. we're gonna play one shot of like the judge dread and the worlds of 2000 ad nobody knows about that game system it's out there it's different and i would watch that just to see what that game system is and maybe actually showcase a bit of like hey who we're playing what did you find out that was fun about the book what did you think about this and i think yeah. that that would be a whole different kind of content that I would like to see. But that's my hot take on action. Fun fact, I actually just pitched a show to uh, a platform doing that exact same thing. It would be featuring, like, one one or two shots featuring a new, smaller known game system each time. Fun fact. Okay. See, good. Uh, yes. But, yeah, that's that's my hot take. But, yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry. By the way, um, as somebody who writes campaign books, 
that needs people to play actual on actual plays. I love all of you. <laughs> I actually do because I mean I get it. It's hard. Somebody asked me why I don't do streaming, right? Mm-hmm. Why I don't why don't I go out there and storytell on stream and things like that? One of them is is time. It takes a lot of work and effort to be a live play or actual play streamer and. It, the amount of prep work, behind the scenes stuff, audio stuff, video stuff, branding, marketing, ads, like, you know, keeping your players engaged, you know, making sure that your schedules align all the time. It is actually a significant amount of work. And yeah. it's a lot of work that I don't think that there's enough payoff for without them getting, without people having like sponsorships or getting to a point. Now, if you're just doing it for fun with your friends and you want to record it for later use, well, that will prevent you from having bar memories for sure. You have actually made something. Mm-hmm. Good points. Good points. Um, but yeah, as, so, it li- for folks listening, um, perhaps you have, their game game masters out there listening right now um and i'm curious what tips or advice would you give to to game masters to gms to become better gms lay with table tension or to be becoming better gms uh learn how to improv is one good one uh run a small live action game take your friends out uh of their element at the table and try to run a game session without dice literally is a challenge um try to run a game session where you introduce a new mechanic that the players can physically touch if you have that ability like a dread tower or something uh but basically change up what you're doing just a bit because 90 percent of storytelling well that your players see not that you are doing behind the scenes that your players see is how you narrate talk to them how you act for your npcs you know there's all kinds of little tricks of you know just having like the seven dwarves behind your gm screen so every npc you meet is either like sleepy happy drowsy you know something like that <laughs> just an, an emotion to that you can quickly grab to gravitate to to make something relatable um one of my fun quick easy tricks is not every bad guy that get or mook in an npc adventure is ready for the players to kill them Sometimes the players might get to an encounter early and the characters are still in the middle. The bad guys are still in the middle of like cooking dinner, you know, mm-hmm. um, playing around with time and what you think about the characters doing in their down lives, um, will naturally help make your characters more lively. I've had, uh, a horrible cultist before that was allowed to live by the players because when they came in, he was just sitting there doodling on a notepad. And they found out he was just drawing pictures of like this like elderich sunset that was happening because the ritual him and his buddies were casting mind you but he just <laughs> found it pretty and they chose to let him live and he ended up becoming an entire thing um so just small moments of life into your characters whether even if they're monsters mm-hmm. right you know you see this in pixar and you see this in like all of these movies you know, these animation directors and these creature directors watching their special effects podcasts and the behind the scenes is a great way to learn about little tricks that they do to add elements of emotion to make these things seem alive. Good, 
Good suggestions. I'm curious, do you have a a favorite NPC that you have created off the fly? Like, just off the cuff, improv, created a new character that you and the players just fell in love with? Well, okay, I'm going to recruit myself from saying that the ones in my novel, uh, because as as a, as an actual, as an off, the author brain in me makes NPCs all of the time. But the Good point. Complete, Good point. completely at table one is a character named No Eyes Enrico. And it was at the kids' tables, and I had these uh, five, uh, like 16 to, uh, you know, or 14 to 17 teenage girls who really wanted their session to be more Sailor Moon um, meets Pirates. Right. Mm -hmm. And which is awesome because I grew up on Sailor Moon. Like, so I was, you know, all down for this. And so anyway, have you ever played the 90s tabletop RPG Sailor Moon system? I have not. And I didn't know there was one, but I guarantee you want to be looking that up. I can send you the PDF. Tells you Um, how to make your own Sailor Scouts, your own knights like Tuxedo Mask, and even like your own uh, evil folks from the Dark Moon Empire. Oh my God. Okay. You might have just uh, changed my entire winter. Um, this is going to happen. Somebody's going to be playing a Sailor Moon game with me. Uh, anyway, I, I volunteer. <laughs> uh, I if you're ever in Michigan or uh, need players hey, not, calling in, you know, I'm, I'm not far from you. I'm in Chicago. Yeah, there um, you go. So anyway, uh, but yeah, No Eyes and Rico. Uh, we had all of these characters, like the pirates were raiding. They were just random. Uh, villains uh that the like the players were fighting and swashbuckling with and somebody cast blindness on one of the pirates and uh you know he critically failed and just starts wandering around and i literally have him wander off the battlefield <laughs> at some point he wanders into one of the characters houses and it's just like standing there they come home later at night and it happens to be the warlock who's kind of a bit evil and uh the player's like what what are you doing in my house? Whatever. You're mine now. I've adopted you. <laughs> and he like, like I was trying to be creepy and horrible. I was like, he like, like had carved out his eyes because he thought something was wrong with him because he couldn't see. And so he like turns to her and I thought it was It was a Halloween game session. So I thought it was going to be spooky. And she was like, yeah, now you're just no eyes Enrico now. And I'm like, why Enrico? His name isn't even Enrico. And she's like, no, that's just his name now. <laughs> and so they just adopted No Eyes Enrico. And I will tell you that after a year long of gameplay, No Eyes Enrico actually managed to survive somehow every single adventure that they brought him on. He never died and kind of became like this legendary lucky person that just always made it out. Shout out to No Eyes Enrico. Yep. Wherever they are now. He, the, the, it, if you ever read any of my campaigns and there's a, uh, you know, Easter egg for No Eyes Enrico, now you know where that's from. Good to know. That That's that's awesome. That's very cool. Very cool. But we are getting to probably my one of my favorite parts of these tabletop episodes, the where we get either classy or racy. So, Rick, are we getting classy or racy tonight? We're getting classy. Classy, okay. With this, we are going to come up with a brand new class or subclass. Of can be whatever. So, Rick, what kind of what are what what you thinking? Okay, wow. So no no prompts at all. So nope. uh, it's a class or a subclass. There's your prompt. There's my prompts. Okay. So well, geez, can be for any system. Doesn't matter. Can be system agnostic. Doesn't matter. Well, 
you know, what about, let's see here. I like. Do you, do you hmm. want a prompt? No, 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 no. So the problem is I like, okay, so here's the crux I just realized. All of my brain is like, here's all the things I'm currently working on. What can't I mention? I can't use any of those. <laughs> so it needs to be something completely uh, fresh. All right. So what about a, um, I don't think there's any of these in D&D. There might be subclasses related to them. But we're going to go with a class. Yeah, we're going to go with a bard subclass. Bard um, subclass. A bard subclass who I have always wondered if you could find a way to incorporate literally social combat into D&D. Like, I'm not stabbing you with a freaking raper. I am literally insulting you so badly and or um, arranging scenarios of tragedy around you that are sapping your very existence. So you're just hurling insults. It's like you going super sane with vicious mockery. Yeah, like, you know, hey, guess what? It's, uh, you know, you're in a turn of the 19th century campaign and, you know, you walk into a bar and you or you walk into a, this court gathering and you've decided that everybody's fashion is so inferior to you and they all need to die. What kind of class would have the ability to move among that crowd in a social combat arena and without being so obvious about it at first, but slowly over the night, like rising to a crescendo of an encounter, laying little bits of groundwork that by the end with their ultimate ability, people are literally willing to just yeet themselves out of the window or disown their fashion or commit murder against each other. Just that kind of person who can subtly run a room and have it not be like, hey, you're taking hit points of damage. The gaslighting bard? The gaslight bard? Oh my god, yes, we can go with this. Gaslight uh, bard. Gaslight School bard. School of gaslighting. Uh, <laughs> oh, that is horrible. I regret this class choice. Let's, uh... Okay. It's already done. No, yep. no, it's a... Yep. <sighs> it's already, it's already there. We're gone. It's a villain class, guys. This is the one that yep. goes in the GM book. Okay. It's the antagonist. Let's... Okay, let's break. I'm opening up my handy dandy uh, breakdown. So you have your Bardic College, your college, your school of gaslighting. Um, let's see. So at their level, what is the specialty of the gaslight? Like, what is the level three ability you gain. The ability to, uh, uh, you know, you're definitely going to get some kind of empathetic ability. The ability to read the room, right? To know somebody's flaw that makes them tick. You know, you see that person who walks in the barbarian, you know, with, uh, you know, they've got their axe put away. They're a little bit uncomfortable in a court setting. You are the one who picks up on that. So, you know, obviously a simple, you know, something akin to level three of like hey you gain advantage on inside checks but that's boring it doesn't do anything right it's like great you get advantage woo um but you know nice little passive but then what i'd if, like to that what if if after a successful insight check knowing the room knowing a person kind of knowing what makes them tick and like what really uh, hurts them mentally and whatnot 
that knowing the room then after successful insight check it gets you an additional like d4 points of damage on vicious mockery or, oh no no i was I, I i like i said we want to stay away like i i don't want hit point damage to be in the class until it's right there right because they still have all the other bard abilities right they can do all the spells but i'm thinking that like right away once they succeed on that insight check then they also can read a room and gain and know why people are uncomfortable upset what makes them tick so this is a a, a questionnaire that you get to ask the storyteller like yeah Hey, you know, storyteller just says, I'll oh, make an insight check. You might notice this about a person. You might notice that this person's got a little bit of nerves. This bard would be the one who's like, okay, well, why? You know, almost like Sherlock Holmes a bit. You read them so well. They keep looking at this other person. The storyteller's going to have to fill in some gaps for you and, you know, let you know what makes people insecure or what makes NPCs insecure or other characters um you know, what don't they like about themselves? You get to see the flaws in others. Uh, and I guess... That, we, that's, I guess we, that's a cool name for an ability, see the flaws. Yeah, see the flaws. And I think that, uh, you know, you also get to, you know, if in actual design, you would probably put in some kind of combat utility. Hey, you know, in combat, if you succeed at see the flaws, next round, you can grant advantage to somebody. I like that. So, Know the Room gives you the advantage on all insight checks, but also after successful insight check, you'll discover and kind of be able to put together and have a deep knowledge as to why or what is affecting or making a person specifically feel insecure, or what they're insecure about. Yep. And then maybe once you know the flaws of the person or whatnot, you gain... For the next minute, you have advantage on. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Just... I, I I I would say I would say something like for the next. Uh, if I was to like kind of try to narrow this down into an actual design, I would say for the next five rounds of combat, you can grant advantage to any of your party members because you are a bard and you want to help out your friends. Or in non-combat situations, you have advantage on any of your next social roles against the target for an hour. I kind of like the idea that like being able to go after or like insult people will almost goad enemies to attacking the bard. Like, goad, like pulling the attention away from almost... Like a, a barbarian, what you would expect like from like a barbarian or a more tank class, but like this insulting, this gaslighting bard just pissing people off enough that they will try and go after the bard or maybe make them more susceptible to effects of charm. That well, you need you, you need two abilities that you need two abilities at level three. Yeah, and so you know you have uh, you know see the flaw and then you know twist the knife, right? And so twist the knife is like at any point in a combat with like your, or any point in a scene, you know, you can make a deception or performance, you know, whatever check, even I would even allow like a dexterity check to just like <laughs> glove slap somebody. Um, right. Right. Like whatever mm -hmm. you do, you do some kind of check, but then that person is definitely going to have to be making wisdom saves or get enraged at you and become like hostile. Right? Yeah. Whether it be socially hostile to eventually maybe you can drive somebody berserk, 
but you know maybe that might be a class feature for later or something like that or even because it's more of a mental assault after you've kind of twisted the knife or whatnot they have like disadvantage on like wisdom or intelligence checks of like your party members Ooh, i like that one i like that one that's better Good stuff. So, know the room, see the flaws, twist the knife. I like this. You're, oh, you're you're a cruel individual, Rick Hines, coming up with the gaslight bard, but I love it. Wonderful. Uh, but yeah, so that is, that's, we've pretty much made the basis for your gas, your school of gaslighting yeah. bard. And, and it just, you know, scales itself up naturally to eventually you know, the bard's, you know, penultimate ability, you can cause entire court kingdoms to just be all negotiations to fall apart, all happy politics to just go south. You are the cooler, like casinos have, like that myth of like somebody with just terrible luck. You're the person that kings and queens bring in when they want to cause ire upon their enemies or, you know, sabotage another kingdom's, uh, you know, talks. Wonderful. And as I was introduced to you through former guest, Pat Edwards, also wonderful uh, tabletop RPG individual and writer, you could use a Pelicocra, which is a Pelican version of a Cocra that we invented on his episode. That would be a gaslighting Pelicocra bard. Who will convince you that seagulls are just rats with wings. Pretty much. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh man! At some point, this class is going to have to have the feature that you can convince somebody that just no, no, I'm right. That never happened. Yeah, I don't know there. what you're talking about. You just imagine that. <laughs> it's it's kind of like the ga- It's kind of like the dream sequence. No, you just dreamt that. I don't know what you're talking about. And this is why this is a villain class, people, because <laughs> gaslighters are assholes. A requirement is. <laughs> Uh, uh, a, a chaotic or evil line class. Yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Hands down. Hands down. But thank you so much, Rick, for coming on and talking. This was a lot of fun and very insightful. Thank you for having me, man. This is a blast. No, of course, of course. And uh, good to know that you're in Chicago. If you're ever out in the Metro Detroit area or Michigan area, let me know. Would love to meet up for a beverage or uh, another chill session. I can't wait to talk to you more in January or once your the the Crow stuff is out, the Crow system and supplements out. That's very exciting. But for everything Especially else. Especially since it's set in Detroit. Even better. You got to come up here for like a, a tour or something. I will be at conventions up there. Trust me. Oh, perfect. Perfect. But where can people find you online? What do you have cooking? I know you touched on it a bit more, but go ahead and open the floodgates and plug away, sir. So you can go to my website, rickhineswrites.com. It's pretty simple. It has links to everywhere. You can follow me on TikTok for storytelling tips and advice. I do like both how to not suck at storytelling, random things. I talk about game design and writing, and I'm at CrankyBolt on TikTok. Um, and I'm at CrankyBolt on Twitter. CrankyBolt's kind of my like online persona before I switched over to having the professional like Rick Hines part. Um, but so just Google that. 
you will find me. Um, my novels, The Seventh Age series, are available just about anywhere. The Seventh Age Dawn and Dystopia. I'm chained to the keyboard writing book three. I'm that's my NaNoWriMo plan this year, so hopefully I can get book three out uh, next year. But also, we are creating our own game studio where we write badass epic campaigns that plug into people's homebrew worlds. And that is going to be Storytellers Forge. Our first project is going to be launching sometime late February called The Black Ballad. And, you know, stay tuned for that. All of my like website and Twitters and socials will have official announcements when all the pretty pictures are up for it. Wonderful, wonderful. Be sure, everybody, to check out all of Rick's stuff. It's fantastic, and I can't wait for all the amazing things that you're working on. And thank you to each and every one of you who's listened today. Be sure to rate and review us on your preferred podcast services. I'd really appreciate it. If you have an RPG you would like us to feature on an episode or an RPG system, tweet at underscore RPG University with the hashtag RPGU with your suggestion. Or you can share your own favorite RPGs and memories directly with me on Twitter, at ProfessorRPG. As always, everybody, stay safe, stay healthy, be kind to one another, class dismissed.